Do you want to jumpstart your innovation? Applications are open for the 2022 Rosamond Innovators Program. Connect with people who can speed up your scale-up in health tech, subject matter experts, clinicians, partners, and investors. Deadline to apply is April 11th. Visit rosamondinstitute.org to learn more. What we're really working to do is to try and standardize the field of asylum medicine. Right now, this is work, as you can imagine, is done mostly pro bono on nights and weekends. Um, it's often run by passionate students and faculty members who are supervising and lending their expertise um, beyond their dedicated clinical time. And now, from San Francisco and the UCSF Rosenman Institute, the Health Technology Podcast with your host, Christine Winotto. Asylum seekers have been making headlines, but it's rare that we get to read their stories. Our guest today, Dr. Suzanne Barakat, reads the stories of asylum seekers every day in the scars on their skin and the traumas they bring to the clinics he runs. Suzanne is executive director of the UCSF Health and Human Rights Initiative. Suzanne and her team give pro bono medical evaluations that help immigrants gain asylum. Her work is almost as impactful as her story. Here's our conversation. Thank you, Suzanne, for joining me this morning. Thank you, Christine, for having me. We briefly talked last year, and I, after I talked to you, you opened up a lot of things that I didn't know much about, certain aspects of healthcare. But before we dive into that area, I thought it would be good uh, for our listeners to learn a little bit about you, your background, what, what take you to where you are, and all this kind of good stuff. Thank you. Thank you, Christine. Yeah, so I'm a family physician. I trained and did my residency at San Francisco General at UCSF. And um, I think it was in the midst of my training, the combination of dealing firsthand with family members who were becoming refugees in the Syrian crisis and my involvement in that and feeling very frustrated by humanitarian efforts by physicians not being enough. Uh, and fast forward, and in the midst of my training, my brother and sisters-in-law were, it uh, doesn't matter how many times I've done this, it never gets easy, um, they were murdered, uh, execution style in the safety of their home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, by their white supremacist Islamophobic neighbor. I'm so sorry. Thank you. Um uh, and, you know, it, it was a hate crime. Um, he, the neighbor didn't like that my sisters-in-law wore the hijab, as I do, and were visibly Muslim. Um, they were both in dental school uh, at UNC um, with very bright futures ahead of them, were very community service oriented. And as you can imagine, that completely um, changed my world and that of our families and our communities and while I was completing my training in family medicine and serving the underserved patient population, I found myself doing advocacy work uh, on working on diversity and inclusion and 
being a voice to, you know, uh, share just how prevalent and fatal Islamophobia is. And with the recent administration and using the Muslim ban as a way to, uh, you know, fear-mongering that otherwise an entire group of people. And to this day, Islamophobia feels like an acceptable form of bigotry. Fast forward two years and I'm wrapping up my training and my cousin and aunt, my cousin who was born in North Carolina, was a freelance reporter with ABC New York and was uh, a rising journalist, was pretty vocal against the Assad regime in Syria, as was her mom, and uh, they were assassinated in their Istanbul apartment. Um, They were found with their throats slit, wrapped into carpets that that were doused in lime detergent. Sorry, it's never easy talking about this. Um, And here I was in my separate life trying to complete my medical training and feeling so disconnected between the clinical work that I was doing and continue to do in the Syrian refugee crisis setting and with these incredible injustices that were happening to me, my family, and not really finding a course forward. Um, So a few years went by and I joined UCSF as the executive director for the Health and Human Rights Initiative, which uh, is a a novel initiative. Our primary program is the Human Rights Clinic, where we provide pro bono forensic evaluations for our clients that support their legal immigration cases and oftentimes bolster their chances of obtaining asylum. What do you mean by forensic? evidence for asylum seeker. Yeah, so we have a client that's for that's been referred to us by an attorney who believes that an evaluation by a physician or a clinician could really help increase their chances in front of the judge of obtaining asylum. So what we do, we sit down with them for 4 to 6 hours and do an in-depth history and a physical exam. We document uh, we use the skills we learn in medical training to look at the skin head to toe and document any scars and corroborate based on our training and forensic evidence with the narratives and the stories that they share on what happened to them and their bodies. And so we're able to physically document and using um, standardized guidelines on how the skin reacts to certain kinds of scars, like a cigarette burn will have a very classic kind of burn and mark. Um, that is able to increase their chances of, sadly, being believed by a judge um, that that this torture and persecution happened to them. And it's not just physical evidence. We also um, are able to diagnose mental health diagnoses, uh, PTSD, depression, anxiety, and are able to share that in our affidavits um, to the attorneys and judges. And what we found is that Nationally, if an asylum seeker is is fortunate enough to find an attorney to take their case, their chances of obtaining asylum are about 40%. And when you add a forensic medical evaluation like the one we offer, and is offered at uh, several student-run asylum clinics across the country, um, that rate goes up to about 85% of being able to obtain asylum and not be deported um, out of the U.S., And if you add um, 
just with the last two years with our clinic to date with cases that have gone to court, we're very grateful to say we have a 100% asylum grant rate. Um, so that's been really exciting. And beyond just working uh, and doing these services in the clinic, what we're really working to do is to try and standardize the field of asylum medicine. Right now, this is work, as you can imagine, is done mostly pro bono on nights and weekends. Um, it's often run by passionate students and faculty members who are supervising and lending their expertise um, beyond their dedicated clinical time. And so there's no real rigor or standardization to what the best practices are, what immigration judges are looking for uh, to optimize this kind of evaluation. And additionally, in part of the standard setting that we're, we're focused on, on doing, it's, it's also creating a pipeline of the future forensic experts who will continue to lead in doing this work and in setting future standards. So, Mike, you mentioned a little bit even about the judges. What are the judges looking for? Is there a standard or is that also very random or very depending on the judge's experience? In terms of their acceptance of, right. of the... So it's, uh, you raise a really important question. Um, in terms of the affidavits that are submitted, there's no standardization on how they should be done. We've had focus groups with immigration judges who've told us, you know, we see this, we really want you to bring the executive summary to the top. We want you to include these appendices that explain how you're deriving your clinical conclusions. But in terms of standardization on how best to report it, that does not exist. And that's different from the question around uh, immigration uh, judges' asylum grant rates. And you can look on the website called Track, where they actually track all um, asylum cases based on immigration judge. And you can see a wide variation from 3% to 97% per judge on whether or not they will grant asylum. So this is also a politically driven um, issue that the field is also working on uh, beyond just the standardization. How can there be more equitable practices in determining asylum? And the hope and the goal is by introducing some more objective data uh, within a case that that can help really bolster it. Yeah. This podcast is sponsored by... Brown Rutnick's Global Life Sciences Group, a team of legal professionals that help life science companies, lenders, and investors around the world turn good science into good business. Learn more at brownrudnick.com. This podcast is also sponsored by Canon Quality Group. Canon Quality Group has been helping med tech startups set up quality management systems for over 10 years. If you're unsure when to get started with quality management in your startup, turn to the experts at canonqualitygroup.com. I mean, I don't have much experience with asylum seekers, but I remember in 1998, I grew up in Indonesia and in the 1998, there was a targeted uh, hate for the Chinese ethnic minority. And I knew at that time, there are a lot of people who came to the U.S. and sought asylum in Many of them probably 
granted the asylum, but I almost feel at the same time at that time, many of them who got it did not really go through what many of your patient went through and yet they got it. And so it's almost like there's certain political climate that also influenced the decision. Right. Um, It's a very complex um, geopolitical situation that can differ from administration to administration. It can differ on country of origin and how we view them and what geopolitical interests exist at the time. But the bases for asylum can also differ depending on where they're coming from. And people can seek asylum for a number of different things. It can be actual torture and violence or the fear of persecution if they've received threats. Um, So if there's political persecution or religious persecution um, or, you know, ethnic cleansing or genocide, that if you're part of a social group, um, those all qualify, even if you didn't necessarily receive that um, you uh, violence before fleeing, but the fear of it uh, is grounds. But, um, you know, gang violence, domestic violence, we tend to see in our clinic um, uh, some of the more complex cases in which attorneys feel that the documentation of physical and mental evidence would really help assist their case. So they've often been severely uh, tortured, um, uh, abused. um, And uh, interestingly, 86% of the clients we see, we are able to corroborate physical findings on their bodies um, with the stories that they share. And 100% of the patients we see um, have psychological forms of torture and, um, and ill treatment. So one thing that I, when we first met, because I think at that time you were working on a certain way to improve or increase the standardization, the efficiency so that, because like you said, many of the work is done by people like you or a pro bono mm-hmm. uh, having technology that help. What, what were you thinking that can support the work that you do to, to increase the throughput? Yeah. So exactly as you mentioned, one of the issues we have, uh, how do we train new providers to do this work if there's no standardization on how to do it? So in part, we're looking for an educational tool, but also more importantly, looking for an efficiency tool because it can take, while it takes six hours to interview a client, it often takes upward of 10 to 20 hours to write it up again, this is on pro bono time, to then share with an attorney and to not be able to not to have to worry about formatting or placement of um, conclusions and to have uh, a framework that's agreed upon by immigration judges, attorneys, forensic experts, and activists alike really helps simplify that process and um, allow for some standardization of what to expect as the gold standard. And so we've been, um, we've worked really closely with UCSF's IT's office on REDCap, which is um, a digital survey similar to Qualtrics that has required fields um, that need to be asked and in part helps the provider to ensure that nothing of value is missed, but also serves as a data repository for us to do research and multivariate analyses on 
this demographic that's seldomly studied, because how can you study this demographic? Um, and without the data, you know, one of the things that we're really trying to shift here beyond providing the services and studying the, setting the standards is how can we insert the voice of the clinician, of the physician, into the discourse on immigration, asylum policy, and law? Uh, as we're often considered an objective tool for a form of justice that is not even in the conversation. So how can we change that? And one of those ways is by having data. And when you don't know how to define the problem and you don't have the data to support it, how are you going to propose solutions? But as we're collecting data, we, we're uh, submitting publications down on just our first 100 clients, basic demographic and breakdown. And being able to see, you know what, 62% of the clients we see have sexual trauma that we're able to document. This is, it's, it's insane. I mean, the amount of intense uh, lived experience that they have, and they come to us relatively young. They're still in their 30s, childbearing age. And what they've experienced is, is unfathomable. unfathomable. Um, so really, in a way, it's increasing efficiency it's, uh, and retention of providers who want to do this work. It's uh, shortening the time significantly of documentation from 10 to 20 hours to maybe down to about three to six, depending on the case. And it's improving the likeliness of its impact and being able to lead to a, a, a successful asylum grant. You mentioned earlier that there's many different places that many students who provide this service pro bono. How many are out there providing this services in the whole country? And compared to the number of asylum seekers, like what's the ratio? Um, it's an excellent question. There are about 19 uh, typically medical school affiliated um, student-run asylum clinics in the country. Most of them are actually in the Northeast, which, as you know, is quite far from the border. And part of why we started our clinic um, was at the behest of our medical students. We live in a sanctuary city of San Francisco, one of the most diverse cities in the country, with one of the most um, uh, you know, unprecedented numbers of unaccompanied children crossing our border into California. And we serve clients all throughout the state. Uh, not just in the Bay Area, um, that there is a demand and a need. And we know that in the country, there are about a million immigration cases that are still pending. Um, in San Francisco alone, about 80,000 waiting. Um, so this is, you know, we're clearly just a drop in the bucket in terms of providing services. But as you meet each client, you realize that with each one, it is so valuable and important. And what we're hoping to do is by introducing these efficient uh, tools, we can scale the work. And that's precisely what we're doing now and scaling to other UCs, other University of California uh, campuses and sharing our REDCap form to simplify this process for other people to do the work. Now, one of the biggest barriers we face though is funding. Uh, as you're probably aware, funding and philanthropy in the health equity space is really challenging. Um, and it's one of the things that we need most support in. Um, we have so many, I can't tell you the number of 
uh, incredible UCSF physicians who reach out wanting to be involved in this work, but without the ability to have um, scale the capacity with capital, frankly, to cover their time and find that, you know, paying for physicians to do this work on a client that, frankly, there is no ROI on in terms from a pure dollar standpoint, right? Um, if anything, what we're doing is assisting these clients and getting plugged into uh, uh, the healthcare system, many of whom who have never seen a physician before, but have been in the country for maybe seven to 10 years. And we are often the entryway into getting health insurance and getting a mental health um, referral. So we have a, a long ways to go, but it's been really promising just in the last two years seeing, frankly, the support of UCSF leadership in believing in this work and recognizing the timeliness and urgency of us doing this work, so much so that we actually started a second clinic just for pediatrics, the first in the country uh, in Oakland, to help rise to the demand of unaccompanied children needing these evaluations to obtain asylum and derivative asylum for their families. And one thing you mentioned about getting funding for a project that is addressing health equity, I mean, with the COVID, the word of health equity is being mentioned a lot. And I think oftentimes in people's mind, when they think about health equity, they don't think about asylum seekers. Yeah. Can you yeah. kind of... It's, it's a real problem. I mean, if we were to look at just historically, those who actually are deported uh, tend to be around 80 to 90% are people of color. It's a conversation that no one is having right now, and it needs to be had. Um, you know, looking just a couple months back and the image in the New York Times on people on horseback shooing people away mm -hmm. in Texas who were crossing our border in search of safety. And I mean, that's, it's horrific. We're not talking about something that happened a century ago. It's still mm -hmm. happening today. Um, and, you know, it's a question of what kind of America do we want to live in? And what, what hand do we take, do we have in creating that America? And in a lot of ways with philanthropy, moving those dollars, I know there is a lot of conversation around philanthropic funding moving towards equitable areas. But as you said, I don't think a lot of people realize the, um, this domain, for example, of asylum seekers fits under that category. And they are often, even within our healthcare system, they've, they've, they're falling into this gap where they're completely right. unseen forgotten. They're not yet in legal status, and yet they have the most intense pathophysiology and psychological needs of any resident. But, you know, and, and, and to remind us all that these are not people just that we're not interacting with. You know, they are amongst us. They take care of our children. They teach our children. They, um, are our future physicians. We have, we have medical students who themselves sought asylum and are destined to become incredible leaders in this field. Um, <clears throat> you know, when you go to a restaurant or you have housekeeping, um, they're all around and they're one of us. And until we are able to see beyond 
the otherization and the xenophobia that is so predominant in the fabric of this country, we're not going to be able to make effective changes. And that's my hope and goal is that we're, we're, we're not only setting standards, improving efficiency for this work, but we're really moving the needle on seeing physicians and clinicians moving away from just a humanitarian person who provides humanitarian relief into really an instrument of justice and an authoritative voice uh, on on this work. I think that's really interesting because you're right. Most of us think about physician as human doing a lot of human human humanitarian work. Um, but not so much about the instruments of uh, justice. How do you think it can, um, what are the steps that you think that you should take in order to make that happen? Well, it's it's already happening. You know, I'll, I'll share with you an example. Um, uh, recently, you may have heard about a landmark trial in Germany that convicted the first high-ranking Syrian official within the Assad regime uh, on war crimes. And the reason that was able to happen was because of physicians who were trained by our faculty, uh, Syrian physicians who were trained in Turkey to document these war crimes and this uh, the evidence of um, torture and ill treatment. And those cases were then submitted to the prosecutor and were some of the cases that were used in being able to obtain a conviction, a landmark conviction. And so this is just a snapshot of what impact can look like and moving away from physicians just being in that humanitarian context, but using the same skills they're taught in medical school and training to to be used in a legal framework and context. And actually, it's interesting what you mentioned uh, when I think about it as you were speaking about the humanitarian aspect of the clinician. In this country, when there's a lot of crime happen, they do bring physician to provide experts a witness for the cases. So it, in a way, it's kind of interesting for criminal justice domestically that is happening, but more like the authoritarian atrocity. It's slowly happening. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Um, in the in the national and international context, you know, if we look at um, bodies like the UN or, um, you know, Department of Homeland Security or Health and Human Services, uh, it's seldom, you know, it, it's seldom that you see a physician in a position of leadership being able to lend their expertise in clinical medicine in this realm. And frankly, it's because that training doesn't quite exist yet, which is what we're working on doing. Um, Another way of seeing it is you have Dr. Fauci is able to be a national expert advising the administration on all matters COVID because he's received training in infectious disease. Um, Right now, there doesn't exist any advanced training globally on human rights and uh, human rights violation. And so we're launching the first of its kind fellowship um, for post-resident graduates to be able to become trained to do this and immerse themselves in this work to become those future leaders who can speak authoritatively on human rights violations as a physician and clinician. And that is happening here at UCSF? At UCSF. That's exciting. Yes. 
Yes, it and, is. And uh, can you tell me more? Is this a program like, what is the program going to be like? It's all contingent on funding. So if anyone out there is listening and knows of funding resources for us, please let us know. Um, but the idea, similar to like an infectious disease fellowship or any kind of subspecialist fellowship, it would be an immersive year training where you, with supervision and faculty expertise and mentorship, you would do a lot of the forensic medical evaluations, um, would choose a scholarly project uh, of your choosing, whether in the policy realm or in research, um, with placement and agencies that um, we hope would allow our graduates to have an impact and influence um, beyond just, you know, maybe in the academic space, but really thinking about becoming future policymakers in this work with their expertise as clinicians. Thank you for sharing with us your story. I mean, you have a lot of share of tragedy that you experience in life uh, more than anybody ever met in Mm -hmm. my life. And I can see your passion in this space and being a, a Muslim clinician and also wearing a hijab. Do you see hope? Things will get better. You know, this is, it's not the first time I've gotten this question. And um, it always depends on the time of day and the day that you catch me, to be honest. Um, you know, this is this is hard work and it's devastating to live, relive, not just my personal traumas, but the, the, the unfathomable traumas of the clients we serve. How can there be so much suffering? And how can there not be, how's the world not stopping to change this? And yet on the flip side, we are the hope. The resilience of our clients is the hope. And that's what inspires me and moves me forward And in many ways, you know, if I didn't have my lived experience, I don't know that I could lend the same partial understanding to the lived experience of some of our clients. Um, So hope, yeah, I mean, without hope, what is there to live for, right? Right. I think sometimes we, at least how I do it. I feel like when you look around us, there's a lot of great people. And I think sometimes look for the little thing that gives you joy and then help you solve the bigger problem that's kind of Mm -hmm. outside your territory of comfort zone, I think. Yeah. And I'll tell you, looking in this particular context, when I look at our medical students who themselves sought and obtained asylum before joining the ranks at one of the best medical schools in the country who are intimately involved in this work and plan to, and will be leaders in this work, that is hope right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's beautiful. And that just, um, you know, the MLK saying of um, you're bending the arc towards justice, even if we're not seeing it right now. And that's something I really live by in moments of my own despair around the state of things. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and uh, your work. And I really appreciate the work that you do. Thank you for having me, Christine. I really appreciate this time with you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Health Technology Podcast. We want to thank our executive producer, Herminio Neto, and our podcast engineer, Andrew Rojek. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave a review. The Health Technology Podcast is available on all major platforms.